You're 75 now. 74. You're 74, going on 75. I'm going on 75, so are you. You're going to be 75. <laughs> That's true. Oh, poor Bernie. Poor Bernie Sanders. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Me neither. I got the feeling that something right. Oh, yeah. There's that. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 KSO in Cozy Cottage Grove. Out in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI. Out in humid Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. And up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure, as this is perhaps, I don't know, perhaps the calm before the storm. Uh, it, it, and there actually might be a storm uh, in, in Iowa tonight, a blizzard in fact, although that blizzard may not come in, uh, as we are told, until after, the, uh, after everyone has gone home from the caucuses. If so, turnout would be a good thing for people like Bernie Sanders, who is thought to uh, to do well if uh, if turnout is big in Iowa tonight. Now, I know that a lot of our uh, listeners uh, may not be hearing this until after the Iowa caucuses are complete. A lot of our affiliates may not even be carrying this till the next day. So we're not going to go into too many details about Iowa until our next thrilling broadcast when we hear uh well, when we hear what the hell happened up in Iowa, I will have some uh, thoughts, however, on Iowa and some new polling in Iowa as it uh, affects not just Iowa, but the rest of the race in a moment. And we'll be talking about uh, the, the broader picture of the media and their coverage of the presidential contest to date, specifically on the Democratic side. Get to that in a moment. Also, we've got an update here today. Uh, Finally, from the DNC, a story we've been following over the last few days, the DNC has now uh, reached an agreement in principle, according to AP, to have the party sanction and manage more debates during the presidential primary schedule, including a debate in New Hampshire this week following the Iowa caucuses and prior to uh, people going to the first-in-the-nation primary in New Hampshire next Tuesday. The DNC says it wants to give Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and Martin O'Malley time to focus on Monday's Iowa caucuses, and then uh, final uh, they'll finalize details on Tuesday morning. 
That statement from the DNC comes after both Clinton and Sanders campaigns had uh, traded testy statements, says AP, about plans for Thursday's debate in New Hampshire. This would be that new debate in New Hampshire this Thursday that just uh, sort of came out of thin air last week, as announced by the uh, New Hampshire union leader and MSNBC. It's something that uh, Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders have been calling for for a long time. But then once it was announced, once it looked like, well, you know what, Hillary's flagging in the polls, Bernie doing well in New Hampshire, all of a sudden Bernie Sanders wasn't quite as eager to hold more debates. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is he, frankly, uh, was in the middle of negotiations and he used his his new status atop uh, many of the polls in New Hampshire and uh, a number of them in Iowa to get not just a new debate this week, but uh, three or four future new debates as well to not be held on a weekend or a holiday, as so many had been uh, previous uh, to this, as set by the uh, Democratic, by the DNC, Democratic National Committee, uh, who has been uh, charged with trying to help Hillary's campaign by hiding these, uh, de- uh, these debates on the weekends for Democrats and, frankly, holding very few of them. So we will see. We will get uh, details on this new debate that will probably be later this week, probably on Thursday night of this week. We will see. We'll get more of those details as we move forward. And I'm sure, Desi Doyen, you are delighted about it, right? (laughs) Because the Uh, more debates... More work for me. There you go. Uh, You know, actually, I I am, as a citizen, I am glad that this is finally coming out. Mm -hmm. I am glad to see that there are finally going to be, maybe, if we're lucky, in principle, more debates and an opportunity for voters to actually hear about the specific policies that the different Democratic candidates have proposed. Because right now, we don't really get to hear a whole lot about that. Which allows our, that's of course Desi, our producer, that allows uh, the media to get away with a lot of the stuff that they're getting away with when they are covering this election, when they are reporting on Bernie Sanders, when they are regarding him as some sort of a fringe lunatic candidate, an outsider. Well, we're going to talk about that in in a moment. So, yeah, I mean, I, too, uh, share your, uh, uh, well, your your dread of having to cover them as they're going to uh, start coming uh, fast and furious now with the Democratic debate on Thursday, a Republican on Saturday. I'm sure our friend uh, Heather Digby-Parton will be delighted to hear she will be back time and time again, at least I hope. I hope. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, so I share that dread. But I, I also, uh, you know, the more democracy, the better. Sounds good to me. Uh, and holding these debates not on the weekends, not over a holiday will be a good idea. Anyway, we'll get to uh, we'll get back to uh, presidential politics in a moment. But I wanted to I wanted to get to this story. I want to make sure we get this story because this sort of uh, snuck out over the weekend with few people noticing. And I haven't heard it uh, uh, discussed very much. This comes from Reuters. The U.S. Defense Secretary Ash Carter has decided not to impose any further punishment on David Petraeus, the former U.S. military commander and CIA director who admitted sharing classified information with his lover. That, according to a letter seen by Reuters, Petraeus resigned as head of the CIA in 2012 after it was revealed that he was having an affair with his biographer, Paula Broadwell, when he pled guilty 
to mishandling classified information. A court document signed by Petraeus and prosecutors said that in 2011, Petraeus illegally gave Broadwell access to official binders. He was a four-star general. He uh, retired and and was sentenced to just two years of probation. And he was fined $100,000 but spared any time in prison after pleading guilty to, well, you know, mishandling classified information. He just mishandled. He was the head of the CIA. He just mishandled the classified information. The Pentagon, of course, could have sought further reprimand for Petraeus under military law. The letter from, who was this, from Stephen Hedger, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Legislative Affairs, that letter was addressed to the Senate, saying there would be no further punishment, or at least they're calling for no further punishment for Petraeus. That letter was sent to the Senate Armed Service Committee, uh, to the chair of that committee, John McCain, and to fellow Senators Jack Reed, who had recently asked Defense Secretary Carter to not take any more action against Petraeus. Let him off easy. He shared confidential information with his lover who could have easily blackmailed him. But let's, you know, let's let him off easy. Just like we let Edward Snowden off easily. Oh, wait. Exactly what did Petraeus share, by the way? Far worse Far worse, arguably, uh, than the information that whistleblower Edward Snowden, uh, who is still uh, you know, stuck in Russia, unable to leave uh, for uh, fear of facing arrest by the U.S. and uh, being unable to argue his case in response in court as a whistleblower, because they won't let him argue uh, his case in response under the uh, things he's currently charged with. In any event, uh, Petraeus... Um, shared black no, what, something known as black books. These are the binders that Petraeus had shared with Broadwell containing classified information, including identities of covert officials, something that Edward Snowden never shared. Neither did uh, Bradley Manning. Identities of covert officers, code word information, again, something that was not shared by these other people, war strategy, intelligence capabilities, diplomatic talks and information from high-level White House National Security Council meetings, including those with Barack Obama. This was shared, remember, keep in mind here, He didn't share it uh, because he thought there was some sort of uh, law breaking going on, some sort of rule breaking, something the American public needed to know about. Unlike Edward Snowden, who was, you know, who felt very strongly, you may or may not agree, but felt very, very strongly that what the NSA was doing was unconstitutional. And, of course, courts and even the president of the United States has uh, come out since to agree with them. The law has been changed based in no small part because of the revelations of Edward Snowden. What David Petraeus was doing was no such thing. He was sharing these incredibly high-level, incredibly classified, incredibly confidential uh, uh, documents with his girlfriend so he would look good. She was working on a book about him. So he was doing this to make himself look good to his girlfriend, to his biographer, 
This was not to, uh, you know, to, to, to change the law. This was not to blow the whistle. So he, he shared much higher uh, level of classified documents. He did not do so for any whistleblowing reason or anything else, and yet he is let off with the slap on the wrist. Two years probation, $100,000 fine, which I'm sure he had no trouble paying. He now serves as the chairman of the uh, private equity firm uh, Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts Economic and Geopolitical Think Tank, the KKR Global Institute. So he works. He continues to have a job. He's just fine. He's got people at the highest level telling him to go give this guy a break. No more. No further punishment for him. Everything is fine. And the military goes along with it. Meantime, Edward Snowden is a terrorist. We've got to destroy him. We've got to apprehend him. We've got to arrest him. We've got to throw him in jail. Just unbelievable hypocrisy in this country. Just unbelievable hypocrisy. So uh, David Petraeus, he's off and running. Good luck to you, Mr. Petraeus. All is well. It was all worth it, wasn't it? Man, unbelievable. All right. Um, back to I just wanted to make sure to get that because there's because the presidential politics are sucking up all of the oxygen. And understandably, now that uh, after what seems like forever, Americans are finally going to be going to the polls in New Hampshire next week, uh, this week uh, going to caucus finally in Iowa on both the Republican and the Democratic side. And the contest on uh, certainly on the uh, the Democratic side is, uh, well, anybody's guess. We will find out what the caucus, uh, what the the caucusers, the cockeye. I don't know what to caucus call them. Goers. The Hawkeye, cockeye, uh, whatever <laughs> we call them up in Iowa, what they actually end up doing. Going into Monday's caucuses, echoing um, another a poll late last week by uh, PPP that showed uh, Clinton was leading Bernie Sanders by eight points. Now another poll uh, says the same thing. Emerson College Polling Society poll uh, released on Monday showed uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton beating Senator Bernie Sanders 51 to 43 in Iowa. That eight point lead has changed very little since 10 days ago, according to this poll. But there has been very little consensus amongst these polls, uh, particularly in Iowa, with uh, some polls suggesting that Bernie Sanders is leading in the Hawkeye state. And I will say this. It is very difficult to poll these caucuses because you don't know uh, who's going to be showing up. Uh, things change during the course of the caucuses. This is unlike uh, you know regular voting where you're not allowed to, to, to electioneer within the polling place. In, in a caucus, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to electioneer. You're supposed to convince other candidates to come along with you. And uh, and there's a question of and it's a long process, by the way, you've got to be there for a number of hours as this process plays out. It's a little bit different on both the Republican and the Democratic side. There is, uh, you know, if if you don't have 15 uh, percent on the Democratic side, if you don't have 15 percent at any particular caucus, then your voters can go over uh to to the uh to the other candidates side so it's a complicated process the rules are very difficult it's uh only known and understood frankly by democrats in iowa only they know what actually goes on and there could be some chicanery there was a report over the weekend about uh, uh i think it was over at buzzfeed that uh uh you know there's some concern that if martin o'malley doesn't reach the 15 percent 
percent threshold that his supporters are then you know required to choose another candidate they may go on over to bernie sanders therefore there has been some talk perhaps the uh hillary clinton has been training some of her volunteers at these caucuses uh to vote for uh, martin o'malley to keep him so that he meets the 15 percent threshold at each uh, caucus site so that his supporters don't then go on over to Bernie. Dirty pool? I don't know. It's within the rules. It is allowed. BuzzFeed has has reported that uh, Barack Obama's uh, people did uh, something similar back at Obama and Bill Richardson back when they ran in 2008 uh, during the caucuses up in Iowa. So we'll see if some of those uh, so some of that makes a difference in the results. Uh, but that anyway, that's one poll showing a Clinton up ahead in another one just out on Monday. Uh, Quinnipiac poll uh, shows that Sanders maintains his edge among Democratic caucus goers. Fourteen uh, percent who choose a candidate say they could change their mind, while two percent are undecided just uh, hours before the, uh, the start of the caucuses. So Sanders has a lead in that one. And yet there's a big chunk of people, 14 percent, who might change their mind at the caucuses. That last poll, by the way, showing that Bernie Sanders has a lead. Uh, that's uh, 919 likely Democratic caucus goers versus just uh, 300 likely Democratic caucus goers. Uh, in that uh, Emerson College poll showing that Clinton has the lead. So who knows? Who knows? The voters finally get to speak. We will talk about all of that tomorrow, no doubt. In the meantime, as AP reports, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders at a uh, uh, Grandview University uh, rally in Iowa said that the country has reached a, quote, pivotal moment. And many understand that it is, quote, too late for establishment politics and establishment economics. This was one of his final uh, Iowa rallies before Monday night's Iowa caucus. He drew about 1,700 people to a Des Moines College gym. He urged supporters to band together to uh, uh, tell the billionaire class they cannot have it all. How was that? That's Pretty good. good. Right, thank you. <laughs> Impressive. He credited Iowa for helping then uh, helping to elect then uh, Illinois Senator Barack Obama eight years ago to the presidency and says that the nation can pursue policies like paid family leave, family and medical leave, free college tuition and a transformed energy system to combat climate change. All of these things, I should note, are extremely popular. Amongst the electorate, not just the Democratic electorate, but the electorate as a whole, amongst the American people. These things are not fringe ideas. But if you listen to the corporate mainstream media, Sanders, he's just, you know, he's an idealistic, uh, he's a newcomer, he's an outsider, he's a newcomer to politics. He appeals only to the fringe voters with his, God forbid, socialist political philosophies. EGAD. He supports socialistic policies like Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and the other most uh, wildly popular policies in America, uh, in the U.S. now for decades. Yes, those are socialist policies. They have underscored decades of domestic policy here in America. He supports them. He wants to expand them and he wants other uh, programs akin to them. 
other programs that people also support, that people also find wildly popular. And yes, that would be at least the American brand of socialism. At another rally for uh, volunteers and organizers on Monday in Iowa, according to AP, Sanders said that uh, his campaign isn't just about policy positions like making the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes, also very popular, demanding a $15 an hour minimum wage, also very popular, pay equity for women, popular, and better trade policies, also popular, all popular among the American electorate. But also, he says, it is about revitalizing American democracy. That's what we're doing here. This is a political revolution. Oh, my goodness. Now he's calling on people to revolt. How? By showing up and voting for the candidates and for the policies that they believe in. Well, what a far left revolutionary. He's on the edge. He is so extreme. He's on the fringe as New York Times described it. And even just like Donald Trump, he is on the extreme edge of American politics. That's what the New York Times, that's how the New York Times smeared Bernie Sanders over the weekend. And they've been doing that for a long time. And of course, it's not just uh, the New York Times. We will take a quick break and come back to talk about that with someone who has been following the corporate mainstream media's unfair and inappropriately balanced. Yes, balance is not a good thing in this case. The inappropriately balanced misreporting by the mainstream media for a long time. We're going to take a quick break and we will come back and talk with Jim Norikas of Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. He joins us next. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, Fox News long ago invented the ridiculous slogan, fair and balanced, suggesting that they, unlike the rest of the corporate media, was both. It is a ridiculous slogan, of course, as you know, on a number of levels. First and foremost, of course, uh, because the right-wing Fox News, long, uh, long the propaganda arm for the Republican Party itself, is run by the man who ran Richard Nixon's campaigns. And it is, of course, neither fair nor balanced, as you know. For them, for Fox News, the slogan is as much of a scam, frankly, as much of a Jedi mind trick for their viewers as the great con 
that I, at least as I've described, the great con underscoring much of the GOP's central efforts over the past 35 years, specifically Ronald Reagan's line that government isn't the solution, government is the problem. That notion that government is bad and private enterprise is good has led to the privatization of key government functions over the years, virtually none of which have made government either better or more accountable to we the people. But it has made a lot of uh, many of well, it's made a lot of the wealthy corporations and their owners uh, even wealthier and has otherwise increased the price for certain basic government functions in the, in the bargain as the profit motive for those private corporations has now built been built in to those functions. Reagan's great con frankly, about government has also served to frighten many Americans, to con them, in fact, into believing that government is is somehow the enemy of the people and that only the private sector really knows how to run things correctly. Uh, you know, like a business. Never mind that government and business are two entirely separate uh, entities, or at least they used to be, and that they should be run in entirely different ways. But once again, Business is about financial profits for its shareholders. That's the fiduciary duty of a for-profit corporation. Meanwhile, government is about helping its people to live, to be healthy, to improve their lives, to keep them safe, to help them get a fair shot, uh, to even uh, help them against many of those corporate interests that so many in America, particularly on the Republican side, now believe to be superior to overseeable and accountable government. Over the years, much of the rest of the media, the non-Fox media, have been bullied into responding to the inherent criticism built into Fox's wildly successful slogan claiming fairness and balance. They've taken, the rest of the media have taken it to mean that the rest uh, of that media needs to be more fair and more balanced. Well, heck, of course they do, because look how successful Fox News is. Now, we have long argued here at bradblog.com and here on the Bradcast that fairness is one thing, but balance is BS. And if the things you are reporting are not inherently balanced, they should not be reported as such. We do our readers and we do our listeners and our viewers a disservice by creating this false balance where there is none. So if 99% of climate scientists and their scientific reports find that the Earth is now warming at an alarming rate due to man-made global warming, then reporting reporting the facts just like that is the right thing to do. But you've got so many in the media who will report, oh, uh, Republicans, however, maintain there is no evidence of global warming, or climate change is always changing, and climate is always changing, and therefore there's nothing we can do about it. That does a spectacular disservice to the public. Nonetheless, mainstream corporate media still seems to ill-serve all of us by looking for that phony balance by reporting in what they believe to be a balanced way, even when no such balance exists. And we've seen a lot of this lately in the way that mainstream uh, media, both broadcast media and, as we'll talk about in uh, in a moment, mainstream print publications, the way that they've been dealing with the primary campaigns and specifically in the way Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side is frequently equated with Donald Trump on the Republican side. They're both outsiders. They're taking on the party's establishment on behalf of angry voters or whatever the lazy media outlets tell us, and thus acquainting the long-serving public official Bernie Sanders 
with the reality show showman fact free Fox News created presidential campaign of businessman turned TV star Donald Trump. But they're both the same in much of the media. One's an outsider taking over the Republican Party, moving it farther to the right. The other is an outsider taking over the Democratic Party, moving it to the far left. (sighs) Over the weekend, the New York Times, uh, which has now endorsed Hillary Clinton for the primary, described Iowa voters' apparent, quote, embrace of candidates on the ideological fringes of their parties, placing both Trump and Sanders into that extreme fringe of each of their parties. Quote, both Democrats and Republicans, the Times uh, trip Gabriel instructed readers over the weekend, have seen their presumptive nominees of a year ago, deeply experienced, proven political leaders, brushed aside by Iowans in favor of idle, smashing outsiders. But does that description, does uh, all of that uh, really just turn into false balance? Is there any actual relationship with that uh, that description to facts at all? Or is this merely the false balance that we see so much in the corporate media now uh, as a substitute for actual truth-telling? no matter whose ox gets gored in the process of educating the electorate with facts and the truth. Here to talk about all of this uh, and this, frankly, disturbing, continuingly disturbing phenomenon is Jim Norikis. He's the editor of FAIR.org, the website of, uh, of fairness and accuracy in reporting. Since 1990, Jim has edited Extra, which is FAIR's print publication, now a monthly newsletter. He's also co-author of Way, the Way Things Aren't, Rush Limbaugh's Reign of Error. Jim's worked as an investigative reporter for the newspaper In These Times, covering the Iran-Contra scandal. He was managing editor of the Washington Report on the Hemisphere, a newsletter on Latin America. Jim Norica, sir, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Uh, great to have you here. All right, Jim. Uh, the way uh, New York Times, and they're not the only ones, we'll talk about Chicago Tribune and some of these others, but the way uh, uh, Bernie, uh, the New York Times ca- characterized Bernie Sanders over the weekend as an outsider, uh, you wrote about this point for fair over the weekend. Uh, where does Gabriel and, and the New York Times get this point simply wrong, just right from the jump, as you see it, in, the, in this long piece that ran over the weekend in the New York Times? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, the New York Times and... and much of the the corporate media are really trying to maintain the idea that there are acceptable candidates within the the circle of mm-hmm. uh, acceptable ideas and candidates who are beyond the pale uh, who decent voters should turn their back on uh, you know and they should listen to the New York Times and vote for one of the approved candidates mm-hmm. you know they they make this judgment. Uh, clearly in terms of who is uh, part of a, you know, a, a, a web of, you know, uh, they approve you, you approve them, mm-hmm. and and that makes you part of the club. Well, they went so far as uh, to call them... I can't say that. That's not, a, that's not something that would make sense to the readers of the, uh, of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, many people would, are, are suspicious of people who are deeply embedded in the web of interrelationships that makes up the establishment. Mm-hmm. And so you can't say, you know, vote for these people because they're part of the establishment. So you, you try to make up a, a different reason. 
and and the reasons that are offered are you know as, as in this Trip Gabriel article, some of the candidates are acceptable because they're deeply experienced and proven, right. uh, and then you've got the the inexperienced, unproven candidates, and they're basically talking about Sanders on the Democratic side and and Trump and Cruz mm-hmm. on the Republican side, and it does you know you can make these. Trump doesn't have any government experience. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't been, been proven in politics before. It's not true of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has a long record in, in government. And it's not true of Ted Cruz either. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to contrast Ted Cruz with Jeb Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Ted Cruz has actually had uh, you know, quite a bit more experience in government than he, Jeb Bush has. He's been experience in the, the administration of Jeb Bush's brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're they're offering this this idea to try to get people to come to their senses and vote for uh, a New York Times approved candidate. And Cruz has just to underscore what your your point here. Uh, Ted Cruz has been in government for about thirteen years. Uh, the I guess the the presumptive nominee, the the approved candidate on the Democratic side would be Hillary Clinton. Uh, she's had twelve years of experience in government. Uh, Jeb Bush, you point out in your article, what did he have? Uh, 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 ten years, counting, ten counting years. a stint as the Commerce Secretary for Florida. But compared to Bernie Sanders, he's had 33 years in elective office as a mayor in Vermont, as a, a, what, four, uh, four, two ter- uh, uh, four two, two-year terms as, as mayor. Uh, he was in the House of Representatives for, uh, eight, two, for 16 years, senator for two terms. Uh, and and yet somehow he is not uh, he's an outsider with 33 years in office with uh, more than just about all of those candidates I just mentioned combined. Yeah, it's it, it, it's clear that your experience doesn't count if if the policies that you are promoting mm. are not approved by the the New York Times, and if and if you aren't you know part of the team mm-hmm. uh, is the. I think the, the real issue for the New York Times. I, and I think you're right, because it, it can't be about time in office and it, and it can't even be about popularity, because obviously, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is is drawing crowds larger than uh, Donald Trump even. But uh, you well, you well, say another another issue that that is presented as uh, a reason not to vote for candidates who are are not establishment approved is that they are unelectable. Um, because mm-hmm. some candidates appeal to the broad, sensible center, as right. the Chicago Tribune put it, yes, uh, and other candidates don't. Yeah. And again, it's it, it's candidates like Bush and Clinton are are supposedly the ones who appeal to the center, and candidates like Sanders mm-hmm. and like Cruz and Trump and Trump do not appeal to the to the center. Um, and you can't really prove this by looking at polls. The candidate who who appeals to the broad, sensible center, Hillary Clinton does less well in matchups with the Republicans mm-hmm. than Bernie than Sanders does. Do. Yeah, she does. Uh, well, Bernie Sanders does better against the Republican. Sanders. Yeah, than than uh, Hillary Clinton does. But also, uh, according to those polls, but also according to polls as well, the things that Bernie Sanders calls for are in fact uh, seemingly, in fact, what was the, the the phrase there? The center, the ideological center. Um, 
they are popular ideas. Uh, single payer. This is a popular idea. Paying for, uh, you know, allowing uh, free t- uh, tuition to public colleges, breaking up the banks. These are actually things that are wild, wildly popular, not just with the Democrats, but also with the Republicans. And yet the New York Times describes this, uh, you know, supporters of Bernie Sanders as voters on the ideological edges yeah, the, the center is a very—it's a very tricky idea. The the way that that corporate media use the word center is not the way that ordinary people use it. You, you'd think that it means the policies that are mm-hmm. embraced by a majority of the people are centrist po- policies. Right. That's not what they mean in the media. They mean policies that are embraced by the establishment, and they can be even policies that are are quite unpopular, like mm-hmm. cutting Social Security to uh, to reduce the deficit. Mm-hmm is a, a centrist idea that is wildly unpopular. Mm-hmm. But it's something that people who think of themselves as smart, sophisticated media pundits mm-hmm. will, will say, well, that's a centrist idea that, that people should get behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really kind of a, a, a chill game on the part of the media to try to, to present these ideas that have very little popular support as the ideas of the middle. And this was uh, Chicago, uh, Chicago Tribune, which has uh, long, uh, of course, been uh, moving to the right, as now I would argue even far right. They talked about the broad, sensible center. Uh, they talked about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump as if they were the same, uh, you know, one for the Republicans, one for the Democrats. These are candidates who would be, quote, politically disastrous by turning off the broad, sensible center. And your argument, uh, Jim Norikas, is they're just making that up? I mean, they're just coming out with the idea that the Chicago Tribune itself is just simply determining what the sensible center is, never mind what the polls actually show? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there are some there are some things you can say that Trump and, and Cruz uh, Sanders mm-hmm. have in common. I think that, that in both cases they are outside of their... They're not close to their party establishment. Mm-hmm. Sanders is not a registered Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, and Trump is someone who has a, a kind of hostile relationship with the, the leadership of the Republican Party. And I think that their supporters on both sides uh, appreciate that um, mm-hmm. and, and find that an attractive quality. Um, there are other ways in which they're really not very similar. And one of those ways is that Trump is, is not very popular outside of his own support base, mm-hmm. whereas Sanders is, of all the of all the candidates running for office, um, with the possible exception of Ben Carson, uh, has the the most favorable rating in polls. Mm-hmm. He's got the the most people who like him compared to the people who dislike him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's pretty broadly popular because I think he has, you know, when he when he picks issues like universal health care and and free tuition, he's picking these because he knows that they're popular. Right. He knows that they're the things that people like, and that's why he's why he's offering them. Uh, Trump. With his, you know, his signature policies involve, you know, banning Muslims and putting a wall up on mm-hmm. the U.S. southern border. He's picked these not because they are popular, but because they resonate with a core group of supporters. You know, they're not broadly popular, mm-hmm. but they do strike a chord with the the people he's trying to attract. Um, he's trying. He's really aiming more for fervent support among a smaller group of people, whereas the the goal of the Sanders campaign, I think, is to to get broad support by offering policies that are are beneficial to a wide group of people. 
Yeah, and I mean, one of the things uh, that that also makes the uh, false equivalency between Trump and and Sanders, which underscores it, is you know when, when since you mentioned uh, Jim, you know his call to ban all Muslims. Well, that would be illegal. That would be unconstitutional. Uh, frankly, it would be in complete opposition to his own party's establishment position. But and and I was hard pressed. I was because I was thinking about this earlier to come up with something that Sanders has ever called for. Uh, you know, throughout this campaign or really any times, you know, anything that he has ever called for, to my knowledge, that is, well, either illegal or unconstitutional or uh, unconstitutional or even out of line with the general direction of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, even if you you might prefer Hillary Clinton, uh, you might d- disagree with Sanders on this point or that nothing that he is calling for is, you know, just in strict opposition to what Democrats have called for uh, as a party for years, whereas, you know, you've got uh, Trump and arguably Ted Cruz completely off the reservations. They are forcing the party to them rather than building on what it is that the party already, uh, you know, sort of stands for. A single payer health care has been uh, popular amongst Democrats for years and years. So I, I it right. seems no, to there, do a disservice a, um, to, to Sanders. I think part of the, the, the reaction that you get in the media against someone like Sanders mm-hmm. has to do with the fact that Democrats for decades have been striving to appear realistic. They really are sort of haunted by the, the spirit of 1972, you know, where the... George McGovern. Uh, yeah, the, the, the idea is that the, the Democrats picked... Uh, super liberal candidate and lost badly mm-hmm. and uh, they never want that to happen again mm-hmm. and this has been kind of the mantra of uh, the Democrats in every subsequent election starting with Jimmy Carter and both Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton uh, have expressed the feeling that the ideal way to set up a healthcare system would be to have government paying the bills mm-hmm. in, under a single-payer system their objection to this is not that it would be a bad idea, but that it would be politically impossible. Right. That you can't get something like that past the, the insurance companies and the, the pharmaceutical companies that have a very powerful voice in Washington. And so the Democratic establishment has really tried to avoid taking on issues like that, that they think would provoke mm-hmm. strong opposition from the corporate lobbies that protect the interests of big business in this country. And Bernie Sanders is by saying, no, we're going we're gonna to do this anyway, even though big business will not like it, mm-hmm. that he is challenging the Democratic Party orthodoxy and also challenging corporate media orthodoxy that right. has been very sympathetic to this kind of realism on the part of, of the Democratic Party. The, uh, and I use, I use realism not in the sense of actual respect for reality, but realism is, is defined kind of like the way a center is defined. Um, it's realistic to go along with the powerful, and it's unrealistic to challenge the powerful. It's the conventional wisdom. I mean, it's the media uh, conventional wisdom. We believe these things can happen. We believe that, uh, you know, policy can only be within this window, and anything outside of that is just crazy, in, insane fringe. Uh, Jim Norikas, I got just another minute or two here, but there's been, uh, well, the amount of coverage given to the candidates, particularly in the mainstream media, has been wildly, uh, speaking of balance, wildly unbalanced with the amount going to, uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump versus really everybody else, but specifically, uh, versus both Sanders 
uh, and Clinton. I mean, in both cases, Sanders and Clinton, they certainly represent as many or more voters than Donald Trump does. And in uh, Bernie Sanders' case, he's uh, drawing huge crowds, uh, arguably larger often than Donald Trump. Uh, so I, I think we know about that imbalance, and with with that, which which seems to me to be very troubling in and of itself. But with that in mind, does print coverage, the type that you've been so critical of at both the New York Times and and at the Chicago Tribune and elsewhere, does print coverage even matter? Are these nuances that don't really even matter to voters anymore? Is is it all about TV and and frankly, what makes it into viral social media at this point? Or does it matter what the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and the L.A. Times and so forth uh, have to say on these these nuances you're writing about? You know, I, I do think it matters. Um, and I think that in a way to, to talk about, uh, you know, television is still a big medium, but the, the biggest medium now really is the Internet. Uh, and the, the old line, old school mm-hmm. media outlets like the New York Times um, have a, a tremendous footprint on the web, they're being shared through social media. You know, social media doesn't create a lot of media. It's, it, it spreads around media that's already there, and it's often the old line media that people are, are spreading socially. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I do think it matters. I, I do think that they still have a tremendous ability to set the terms of debate. And I think we're seeing right now a real pushback against that, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, well, uh, whether... Whether social media can counteract the attempt by traditional media to put boundaries on, on what can be debated and what can't, and 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 that's sort of where I want to uh, uh, well leave you with this question. Uh, I, I realize neither you nor I are in the business of predictions here, but uh, do you do you expect that the the media, uh, the mainstream media coverage? Uh, will change in the event that uh, Sanders does win in Ohio and New Hampshire, that he has you know, actually demonstrated by the voters to be uh, more within the mainstream? Will this push media to uh, corporate media to uh, you know, cover him more fairly? Or will this sort of skewed reporting uh, as, as you know, Bernie as a fringe candidate, as the New York Times uh, characterized him over the weekend, will that simply get worse? Will, you know, will the media sort of push back even more against candidates like uh, Bernie Sanders if he is successful? Well, you know, in some ways, Sanders is, is comparable to, to Jeremy Corbyn, the, the leader of the Labor Party in, in Britain. Right. And he, you know, he originally got this the same kind of dismissive "that's never going to happen" coverage that Sanders is getting, that Sanders has been getting. Mm-hmm. And when he got control, you know, when 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 voters chose him mm-hmm. as the the leader of the Labor Party, the coverage got a lot nastier. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly from outlets, uh, you know, like the Guardian, that are traditionally sympathetic to the Labor Party, mm-hmm. they were the nastiest. And I, I think that if Sanders does show a real challenge to the the party establishment mm-hmm. in, in the Democratic Party, uh, I think that you'll see some very nasty coverage indeed. And that's just uh, works out fantastic for Republicans because they can see guys like they can see media outlets like New York Times, uh, you know, going after even harder after uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Fox News can still 
call them the quote unquote liberal New York Times. Man, uh, it seems like they, uh, the, the right wingers always win in these cases, which is why, you know what? Now it's up to the people, hopefully, and the people turn out and vote uh, for whomever they want to vote for. Uh, because, the, you know, I, you know, it drives me crazy when you see the folks on the right just, you know, whining and complaining about their unfair treatment in the media. And then you look at what is actually going on. And it's so much just the opposite of of that and the opposite of the complaints that folks on the right uh, love to make. And it's become their industry. Uh, and following that industry and calling them out for it one way or another on the right and left is uh, Jim Norikas of uh, FAIR.org, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Jim, always uh, great to, to talk to you and, and helpful to, 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 to enjoy your perspective since you've been doing this for so many years. Uh, thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us again today. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Check out Jim's work on uh, on the web at fair.org. And, of course, on the Twitters, he is J Norikas. That's J-N-A-U-R-E-C-K-A-S on the Twitters. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast right after this. And w- one more lie. One more lie that has been driving me crazy about right-wingers. Well, we'll get to that. It has to do with Donald Trump. You'll be shocked to learn right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Well, you know, as long as we're talking about uh, lies, Republican lies, lies about uh, the Republican Party, lies about the Democratic Party uh, by the media. Uh, One of the uh, lies that has driven me crazy for years, as Brad blog readers and Bradcast listeners will know, along with the along with the Fox News fair and balance lie, along with the uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, one small government, the problem is not the government. Uh, how does it go? The, the <laughs> government is the problem. There we go. Right. Government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Uh, another one of these persistent zombie lies forever that drives me crazy, and even among Democrats, is describing Republicans as conservative. As the conservative party, they're not conservative. Most of them, Fox News doesn't give a damn about conservatism. Conservatism, you know, they've rebranded conservatism to basically equal Republicans, whatever Republicanism, whatever it is that Republicans want. Oh, that's conservative. Well, that is not conservative. There is a very specific definition for conservatism. And it is not, you know, the big government of Ronald Reagan and of George W. Bush, who, you know, both increased government spending. It is not the the big government intrusiveness into the lives of Americans to keep them from marrying who they love, to get between a, a woman and her doctor when it comes to abortion. That is not conservatism. And yet they've rebranded basically anything that Republicans do as conservatism because, well, conservative sells better. It has a it's a better it has been, at least for a long time, a better, you know, better branding than liberalism, which Republicans, you know, destroyed years ago, going all the way back to George Bush senior liberal with an L card carrying liberal. 
Anyway, uh, I think that the one thing that maybe we can thank Donald Trump for is underscoring the fact that Republicans are not conservative. Uh, As uh, some of even Trump's opponents in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire are, you know, making quite clear now. Uh, This was whose mailer was this? This was uh, I think this was a Cruz mailer or Rubio. I'm not sure. In any event, Donald Trump is a lot of things. A consistent conservative is not one of them. Well, that is true. And yet the supporters of Trump, they don't care. You know, he's called for all kinds of things that are decidedly not conservative and Republican voters simply don't seem to care. Philip Klein pointing out over at Washington Post, uh, he, he carefully categorizes the various Republican voter groups and he concludes that the persistence of Trumpism, according to Greg Sargent, uh, suggests that the party is far more divided than we thought. Well, not more than I thought, but anyway, here's the description. Here's what he, he, he says is driving Trump voters. Trump supporters aren't particularly ideolo- ideological. They are frustrated because they think that America is in decline economically, culturally, and militarily threatened by other nations on the world stage and by foreigners here at home. They don't care about economic arguments in favor of free trade or constitutional arguments for executive restraint. They don't bat an eye when Trump touts the importance of government seizures of private property for non-public use, eminent domain, in other words, something that, you know, Sean Hannity and and Fox News have pretended to be against for years. But the the supporters of Trump, they don't care. Yeah, eminent domain. Yeah, yeah, sure. Keystone XL, grab up uh, all the land you need to make that happen. They don't care about that. They also don't care about uh, the, the, well, the virtues, as Trump has uh, touted, the virtues of single payer health care, which he has called for. Trump supporters Notes Klein would be fine with more government spending on, say, infrastructure. By the way, same as Bernie Sanders is calling for more money for infrastructure, which then uh, when government spends money on infrastructure, it leads to jobs. It improves the economy. Well, both Sanders and Trump have called for that. And it's very popular. So Trump supporters would be fine with that, says Klein. They haven't particularly paid much attention to fights about the chairmanship of congressional committees. They'd be fine with doubling corporate export-import bank subsidies, something that is also anathema to actual conservatives. They're okay with it if Trump tells them that it would help to crush China, which also, by the way, a muscular foreign policy is also not particularly conservative. Greg Sargent goes on to say another way to say this might be Republican voters supporting Trump actually think government should be able to play a constructive role in making the economy work for them. In other words, they perhaps feel minimal attachment to the idea that free markets are the be all and end all solution or to the idea that their leaders primary role should be to restrain and roll back government to beat back the growth of the regulatory and welfare state, because doing so will unshackle the pent-up forces that could otherwise lift the fortunes of working and middle-class Americans. Yes, that is something that Donald Trump is calling for, using the government to float all boats. And his supporters, which is a plurality of of, uh, Republican voters at this point, haven't 
batted an eye at it, at it. They are just fine. Why? Because they are not actually conservatives. They have been pretending to be conservatives because Fox News told them that they were conservatives. They are not. They are nothing of the sort. And they never have been. Words mean something. And, and so and it's not just the Fox News. It's, it's folks, uh, Democrats, you know, often refer to anybody who is Republican as a conservative. That is not conservatism. That is not conservatism. What George W. Bush did was not conservatism. What Donald Trump is calling for is not conservatism. The, the bulk of what Fox News calls for is not conservatism. These are just lies. That is just branding. And uh, and frankly, it's a gift. It's a gift to Republicans to call them conservative because the word conservative is uh, well, it has at least been very popular, more so than liberal. So anyway, it drives me crazy, drives me crazy. Uh, Trump, not a conservative. And yet right now, at least he seems to be speeding towards the uh, Republican nomination for president. We'll see what folks in in uh, in Iowa have to say about it and then in New Hampshire and so forth. One more. Do I have time for one more? Very, very quickly. All right. Uh, Donald Trump. Uh, has been uh, <laughs> trying over the past several weeks uh, to to uh, you know, make the folks in Iowa believe that he is an evangelical Christian. And he attended uh, services over the weekend at the First Christian Orchard Campus in Iowa. That's a non-denominational church in Council Bluffs, Iowa. He and his wife, Melania, and two staffers uh, took communion uh, when it was passed, but Trump momentarily was confused and he mistook the silver plates circulated around the auditorium for communion and he dug uh, several bills out of his pocket to put into the, what is it called, the communion tray? I don't know. You're asking the wrong guy. But uh, he that was not the offering plate. That was for communion, but Donald Trump was ready to put dollar bills into it. He's good at this. As Trump was leaving, one of the church pastors put his hand on Trump's shoulder and offered him a prayer. And, uh, well, Donald Trump will need those prayers, as will Iowa, as will the rest of the country, as this fine mess moves forward and voting is now underway. So much more on the Iowa caucuses on tomorrow's program. Until then, if you missed any portion of today's, you can always download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes. You can find me and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at TheBradBlog. And you can drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Got thoughts on uh, on the results in Iowa? I'd love to hear from you. Bradcast at bradblog.com. Maybe we'll read some of them on tomorrow's show. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn. And, of course, to my guest today, Jim Norikis of FAIR.org. That's it. Until we see you again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.